In the last year, Rewilding Earth podcast has traveled across southern African countries talking to people working to rewild and reconnect wildlands and protect the iconic and not-so-iconic species living in some of the most beautiful and challenged places on Earth. We started in Mozambique, home of Gorongosa National Park, with Paula Boulay informing us about conservation efforts around painted wolves, lions, elephants, pangolins, leopards, and waterbuck. We then talked with Kathleen Fitzgerald, now a Rewilding Leadership Council member at the Rewilding Institute, about African wildlife conservancies and the state of wildlife protection funding during the pandemic. Then on to Botswana with Dennis Sizemore's organization Round River Conservation Studies to learn about the wildlife issues, community relations, and conservation work being done there. And today, having virtually traveled across the continent, we visit Namibia to learn about private landowner rewilding efforts from Kerry Peterson of Solitaire Land Trust. Stay tuned for some exciting news about Solitaire Land Trust's rewilding efforts and learn how you can help rewild Namibia. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Carrie Peterson is a professional writer, editor, and conservationist. She is co-author with friend and former husband Robert Glenn Ketchum of The Tongass, Alaska's Vanishing Rainforest. In addition to many local conservation initiatives in the various places she's lived, including New York, Hawaii, California, and Washington State, she served as development director for Rod Jackson and Darla Hillard at the Snow Leopard Conservancy. She's traveled through all 50 states and much of China, Japan, Europe, Central America, and Africa. She's currently a managing director of the Solitaire Land Trust in Namibia, a habitat and migration corridor restoration project, and has lived on the edge of the Namib Desert for the past nine years. Namibia is a Southern African country. Um, it's kind of sandwiched between Angola and it lies north of South Africa. Quite large, it's over twice the size of California, but it's only got two and a half million people. It's a vast and empty country. It's got almost a thousand miles of coastline, most of which is unsettled and it's in protected status, which is really amazing. And Namibia is just a spectacularly beautiful country. It's really breathtaking. Modern Namibia is turning 31 years old this March. So that sense uh, the independence. Physically, it's amazing. It's, it's, you've got the Kalahari in the east, uh, the Caprivi in the north, which is more like Central Africa. You've got a very mountainous Interior, uh, Vintook, the capital, is as high as Denver, Colorado. People don't realize that. Mm. The interior plateau um, pitches off toward the ocean, and there's a big drop-off at the Great African Escarpment, which is kind of a rift that runs all through southern Africa down to the Cape. And we are at the base of that escarpment in a 
grassland area that's a long narrow strip that runs north south so throughout the country more or less and then after the grasslands you've got the rolling dunes the namib the namib is considered the oldest desert on earth and those dunes and gravel plains run all the way to the ocean about 150 kilometers away one of the really interesting things about namibia is the amount of land they've put into conservation protection, 17, 18%, I believe, is in parks and protected areas, national parks. And then another about 20% is under conservation management in the form of conservancies where they've put aside big tracts of land for various tribal groups to manage themselves and live traditionally or however they choose. And then there's private protected areas like the one we have. And a number of other people are doing the same thing we're doing. So in around 2007, my partner, um, who had long been a fan of Namibia, um, had a chance to buy into a land deal here. And it was a cattle farm that was for sale, although he had no intention of cattle farming. Um, but he didn't really have a plan either. He just thought it was beautiful. And the, the farm uh, was really stunning in a New Mexico kind of way. Uh, but very overgrazed. So it was a desert farm at that point. And uh, once he bought it, the cattle were removed and we weren't together at that point. So I, I didn't witness this myself, but he said he didn't see any real noticeable recovery for a few years. It just kind of looked the same. And then in 2010 and 2011, Namibia experienced, or this part experienced the hundred year rains. It was just torrential. Mm. And this farm got 450 millimeters or more, some parts of it got more, whereas normal rainfall is about 150 millimeters. It was just a deluge and everything exploded. Uh, and I was here for that rainy season and it was incredible. There were plants everywhere, uh, desert tree seedlings popped up, perennial grass was chest high, just clouds of insects everywhere. The shallow ponds filled up, the ephemeral rivers ran for a really long time. Normally they'll run for a day, maybe even just a few hours. They ran, some of them ran for a year. Now it's only an inch of water, but still in the desert, that's amazing. Yeah. There were frogs screaming all night. You know, these, these are frogs that maybe they made once every 10 years. So they were gonna make the most of it. Uh, shorebirds showed up. There were ducks, there were geese, storks. Um, there were swallows and swifts and huge clouds of birds. Um, the springbok populations exploded. It was just magnificent. And I, I realized now when it's happening, you appreciate it. But 10 years later, you have this whole other perspective. And I realized that that's how a semi-arid grassland ecosystem works when the pressure of overgrazing is removed. And that grass from that rainy season lasted for a number of years. And um, it's, you know, there, each year you'd get rainfall, not as much. It was, you know, steadily declining each year, but it still kept that, that grass alive. And um, the wildlife numbers just exploded. It's 18,000 acres. By 2015, we had 5,000 head of wildlife. Oryx, kudu, zebra, springbok a lot of smaller antelopes, and then of course the predators that come with that. And it was just amazing. So we went from a, a farm with 400 head of cattle and completely overgrazed and no grass to a farm with 5,000 head of wildlife and still had grass. In a span of what? Five years total? Five years. 
Yeah, five years. That's relatively instant. Break. That's like a, a, a real-time rewilding experience compared to others. Well, and the thing is, the desert is opportunistic. It just takes instant advantage of rain. So yeah. we finally, we, we've had about 40 millimeters in the last few weeks. Um, and overnight, the, it greens up. It's just amazing. Because it, it, it has to, because the, the desert doesn't know when it's going to get another rainfall. And and not just that, but, you know, the animals and the insects and the birds, the, everything, I think they function off humidity levels because sometimes the bugs will come before the rain. And then the swallows will come to eat those that bug hatch. And then the rain comes. Sometimes it's the same time, but sometimes it's a couple of days before. So you'll see these bugs and you'll think, oh, it's probably going to rain in the next few days because wow. this building. And sometimes those birds come on the front of these big storms that come down out of the north and they'll just come in the thousands. And you know that, that something's coming. You know, usually it's the storms are because clouds build up over the escarpment, but sometimes they they blow in really hard from from the north and it comes all at once and that can actually be destructive and the wind can be very destructive but it's just this is an extreme environment and you have to be prepared for it and in about 2016 we had a neighbor who is a cattle farmer um some of his cattle got onto our farm through a broken fence and uh, about 25 cows i think maybe 30 he's our neighbor and we get along with him just fine but he wasn't in any hurry to come and get his cows cuz he had no grass left and uh, mm. i think he needed to fatten them up so he could sell them cuz he had no grass left so i'd call him every day and ask him to please come get his cows but <laughs> while they were on the property it was really instructive to witness and and this is in real time how heavy they were on the land compared to the wildlife so we have this huge cement cistern that was originally built for cattle when this was a cattle farm. And we had just been filling it with the solar pump for the wild animals to drink out of a trough. And when it was the wild animals, sometimes it would get drained if it was blisteringly hot and a huge herd of zebra would come and drink it down. But usually it was pretty steady state. Mm -hmm. um, the pump could keep up with the drinking, right? The water. When the cattle showed up, they were draining it every night. It was, there was no water left over for the wildlife. They trampled and killed all the plants in, in that area. There was cow dung everywhere. It was just a mess. And I, I sat there watching it going, this is what cattle do to a semi-arid, delicate environment. You know, it just doesn't work. Here we're sitting with this beautiful land with very poor agricultural value, unsuitable for domestic livestock, but, you know, just perfect for the flora and fauna that evolved over many millennia to live here in these semi-arid grasslands. And that includes oryx, kudu, springbok, Hartman's mountain zebra, cheetah, spotted hyenas, brown hyenas. And a lot of these animals are vulnerable or they're endangered or they're critically endangered under uh, IUCN standards. So, you know, we just more and more and more realized that we had to figure out some way to preserve this and, and never go back into farming. That wasn't an intention, but the fact is if, if someone sold it after we died, that would be a potential use. So we've got this, this area has a very low population now and historically. It never really was, it probably had some uh, semi-nomadic pastoralists, you know, two, 300 years ago, but mm -hmm. 
this wasn't really an area that anyone wanted to farm until they started getting their drilling technology uh, more efficient. There was a boom in agriculture here in the 40s, 50s, 60s because of caracal sheep, which do fine out here. And there was a fashion moment when everybody wanted to use caracal sheep pelts, which is this curly fur that actually comes from fetal lambs. It's kind of depressing when you think about it, but ladies liked hats and jackets made out of this interesting fur. And so there was a boom and it was really lucrative, but then that fashion phase passed and the industry collapsed and people shifted to cattle, goats, and regular sheep. But all those things have been fading since the seventies because it's just really not economic to have domestic livestock in, in such a dry area where you get a severe drought every 10 years. So at this point, most of the farms either have gone completely to tourism or they have some degree of tourism to survive. The farm I live on doesn't. We have some tourism on our other two farms. And we also have some funny little businesses that are basically supported by tourism. Um, but we have more than just a lodge. And so I personally have been involved in conservation my entire adult life. And I've always been interested in habitat restoration. I did work up in the Tongass uh, forest in Southeast Alaska. And even though I love animals and I, I individual species are fascinating to me, I, I, I'm more big picture and I think about save the habitat, save them all. Don't, I'm, I'm not gonna concentrate on a specific species. Mm -hmm. And although I think it's important that people do, uh, absolutely, because we need all the data and information we, we can get. But uh, I've also always been interested in migration corridors because I learned early on that you know, if, if animals can't move and mix, we're going to have genetic problems and bottlenecks. Now we have this growing urgency and, you know, we have half earth and 30 by 30 and the forever wild landscape projects unfolding, which is so exciting. And that momentum, I would say over the last 10 years has, has led us towards rewilding as the best use of this land. We're on the edge of, of the Namib Nalkluft National Park, one of the biggest game parks in the world. And it's really a magnificent achievement. And I think it's fantastic that the government did it, but it's also mostly sand dunes and gravel plains. And it doesn't have any perennial rivers and lots of really interesting creatures live out there in the desert, but it's only productive for the larger species after rains, which are really unpredictable. And so those animals need to move. They can't just live in the park. They have to move. They have to go in search of grass and water. Hmm. And most of that takes place to the east of the park. And most of that land is private and it's fenced. And so three of those farms belong to us. And we decided to take our fences down to give free access to these animals. Basically, you know, we developed our philosophy over a few years. And that's, you know, no fences, free roaming wildlife, a little bit of water, biodiversity restoration, um, dark sky principles. And it just made sense to us. We've been self-funding all that through our Namibian tourism businesses that we own with a couple of partners. Um, but I always saw tourism as high risk, low margin. And even before the pandemic, I was intensively uh, thinking about how to diversify funding for conservation beyond tourism. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I've lived long enough to have seen tourism collapse before. 9-11, SARS, you know, you name it, it's happened before. 
Yeah, so now uh, it's no longer theoretical. Now it's necessary. I mean, tourism income here collapsed. There was nothing in 2020. And we don't expect it to return in 2021. And a lot of people are saying not till 2023. And so there's no cash flow. There's no way to keep these things going. So prior to the pandemic, I started looking into the very complex marketplaces for carbon offsets, for biodiversity and conservation offsets, and um, even payments for ecosystem services. It's really complicated, but I know it's happening all over the U.S. and all over the EU and it's it helps people you know to stay the course and not sell their land or develop their land out of financial necessity but it's not happening here because the governments here can't afford to do that or wouldn't uh, see it as a priority and so it's and it's frustrating because it's really badly needed here and it's happening in relatively rich countries can you it talk probably, a little bit more about that? Why do they feel they can't afford to do it? Well, I would think the government would be accused of prioritizing nature over people because there's still a lot of desperate poverty in Africa. Mm. And even in Namibia, which is which really I, a wealthy country in terms of resources, but the money is not making it to the poorest of the poor. And so there's a lot of frustration and anger over that, rightfully so. People are poor. And unfortunately... They're not thinking about the fact that humans and nature are are linked. And it's you're not really prioritizing nature. You're trying to create a healthy ecosystem where everyone can do better. And I mean, I think that environmental degradation is a human rights issue because the poorest of the poor always suffer the most. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Well, I was thinking with the with the credits and everything, what, what have you found there? Because in talking to other people, your neighbors, everybody has the same complaint right now. And that is, you know, we just realized we were really too far, far too reliant on tourism dollars. Is it that there's not really established programs where money could just start pouring in, just not well established yet? I think all of those things. I think that the markets are too complex to, to qualify for those markets. The complexity is such that you pretty much have to be a giant corporation and a giant uh, park. You have to have someone, you know, like WWF behind you. I mean, the the average um, small private protected area like ours just can't even play the game. Even if we get five of our neighbors together to create a much larger area, let's say um, 100,000 acres um, or more, it's still the complexity is such that it's almost a full-time job for someone really knowledgeable about that marketplace to position yourself. I think the other thing is that governments and, and foundations and organizations in the developed world, or let's call it the overdeveloped world, <laughs> it's just much easier to give your, your, you know, your funding to a, a beautiful forest in Maryland than to take a chance on Africa. But one of the interesting things that might help us is where we're at with technology. You know, in the past, if you, if someone from the US or, or Europe had a project in Africa, you know, they'd send out teams of people, they'd have staff on the ground, and then they would have the, you know, senior staff in, let's say, in Germany or, you know, wherever. And 
they have quarterly uh, field trips and reviews and meetings. And um, that was just the way it worked. There was monitoring, there was compliance, there were reports, there was follow-up. There were a lot of conditions attached Mm -hmm. to the, the money that was being sent over. And that still has to happen. But if one thing COVID taught us is that we probably don't need to travel as much as we thought. We can do a lot of this stuff over Zoom meetings. And in terms of compliance, we now have you know, low orbit satellite photos that are being taken every day of every part of the planet. Yeah. And they're being gathered and they're being analyzed. And I know that kind of sat photography is already being used here in the cattle industry. So why not use it for conservation and combine that with weather stations, which a lot of us already have to monitor rainfall, plus let's say manual rainfall collection in the more remote areas of your farm, because weather stations are not only expensive, but they need a Wi-Fi connection. And a lot of our farms are pretty remote, but people monitor rain. They've been monitoring it for decades. Get wind data and reports camera traps to monitor animal numbers and you know take all these layers of data and compile them and analyze them and use that for compliance data you know so if if my deal with with someone is we won't graze we won't overgraze we won't have domestic livestock we won't burn we won't cut the grub or the shrub trees whatever the deal is it's so much easier to prove now than it ever was at any time and in cheap. history And extraordinary. I mean, the reason that you guys can't play is because you're not big enough. And that's because it's not worth it for their old fashioned way of doing compliance monitoring with big teams moving around the world. If you can get sent uh, soil sample kits with instructions on how to use them and report back and then satellite and debt. I mean, it doesn't really matter how small of an operation you have. The data is being collected anyway. And it's all digital, or a lot of it's digital. There's the cost savings. And you know, the thing is, you can't fake satellite data. It's right. out of your hands. But what you could say is, if you had a bad year, yeah. But we, you know, last year on our farm, on the the one farm that I live on, we only got two millimeters of rain. It was our worst rain year ever. And so, but we could prove that through weather stations. And so, if we didn't have good grass growth there would be a good reason for it. Whereas this year we've already gotten 40 millimeters and we're just in the first few months of the rainy season with any luck, we'll get up to our, our, you know, annual average and expect some, you know, regrowth of uh, the rangeland that's been, you know, pr- it's been pretty tough. Although in 2018, we had a really nice um, couple of rainfalls and we had beautiful grass and just a couple of years ago, it's been up and down, but we're tracking it. We're already tracking it. We could show compliance if, if people well, and you have value stored in your land when your bounce back now from a drought is got to be unimaginably faster and more powerful than the bounce back that took two or three years right after the cattle were, were removed and you had a moonscape for land. Yeah. And you had to yeah. wait for the rain, but I, you know, waiting for rain with the buildup that you have on your properties now and versus what was there in 2010, 
I mean, there's a value in the story. You're like a battery of potential. Because if, if, if the land is heavily degraded, it takes a long time for it to come back. What do you want to do no matter what? What is within your power to take advantage of and go forth with? And what sort of support do you need to do that? So basically, you know, we've been, uh, again, we've been taking down our fences. And um, so we have free roaming wildlife. And our plan was always to open up the land and pray for rain <laughs> hmm. and let nature take care of itself. And to a certain extent that's happening because um, uh, we've had giraffe return. We're having a wildebeest return and they were uh, translocated, I think by the government like a decade ago, 85 kilometers away and they're spreading out because they've been breeding and they've been, um, they're, they're searching for new territory and it's just, it's really beautiful to see them return. There haven't been giraffe here in decades. They were hunted out. And um, so, so nature is rewilding. The key is to get more people involved in our area. Uh, there's a couple more farms that we would like our group to purchase because they connect the existing farms to that escarpment that gets more rainfall. And um, so it's, it's like the watershed. It's like a, mm. a little watershed for our area. And then also talk our neighbors into joining up with us just to keep increasing that mass, that land mass, because it becomes a much more viable ecosystem the more people are participating. And we, we get along great with all of our neighbors. So even if they're not willing to do some formal agreement, I'm pretty sure we could work on migration corridors. So if we just say, okay, tell you what, can we just open up this fencing area, you know, by X amount to create a, a pathway that's not... Um, not too much of an alley, you know, but although animals will take advantage of all that, it's, it's, um, they, they slip through the fences anyway. Uh, mm. the most important thing is to not have them have to run the gauntlet of getting trapped in, 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 in the roadway between fences, which is really d dangerous. And I think causes more deaths than poaching. People are always talking about poaching, but I think roadkill is much worse because they slip through the fences, they get stuck in the roadway, a car comes racing down this gravel road, they panic and they run into the fence. And the smaller antelopes break their necks, the bigger ones, the oryx and kudu and stuff often, well, kudu jump really well, but oryx, they get tangled in the mm. fencing. They often injure themselves so badly trying to get out that they die. They die of stress. They die of shock. I remember working on Ted Turner's ranch uh, during the wolf reintroduction, and he was. Uh, we were building pens for the wolves um, to get used to the lay of the land before they're released, and we got to see his ladder ranch. And he had pulled out. I can't remember how many miles of fence, but there was this flat area on the ranch where he um, had the workers stack up these bones. And when they were taking the fence down after so many years of it being a working cattle ranch and he'd turned it into a bison ranch and they don't mm -hmm. need bison, don't respect fences. They just walk right through yeah. them. They don't care. You yeah. have to use guardrails for bison if you want to keep yeah. them in a place. And so he took all, all this fence. There's this great big snarl of fence. that was like 30 or 40 feet high. And next to that was not as big of a pile, but a pretty darn big pile of bones of elk and deer. And um, that had over the years, um, he just wanted that pile that the workers would normally throw it away. Um, 
but he wanted everybody to see what fences do. Yeah. It's a, it's amazingly yeah. devastating and, and deadly fences. We, there's some newish, uh, you know, fields of study, uh, fence ecology and road ecology, which are really fascinating that people are paying attention. And of course in the U S because it's such a wealthy country, you can, you know, they're building these fantastic wildlife overpasses and underpasses, which are amazing. You know, it's frustrating because there are people in government who absolutely agree with us and there are people who don't. And there's this tension within government of those two groups kind of butting heads with each other. The, the older farmers don't agree with it. They just can't imagine a world without cattle. And so they can't imagine a world without fences. And when we started taking down our fences, even though plenty of our neighbors took fences down, but we, I think because we're foreigners, we caused a little more consternation, but there was a lot of alarm and people told us that we couldn't do it, that it was illegal, that we were going to get in trouble. Some people reported us to the government. We got a couple of threatening letters. They're taking so their we, fence down, do something about it. Yeah. You have to stop this. This is their, you know, these radical people. And so we had our lawyer look at the, these letters and he went back to the Roads Act from the 1970s, which is the main document that talks about fence regulations. And he couldn't find anything about taking fences down. All the regulations were about putting fences up because farmers were notorious for like blocking off places that technically didn't belong to them or to try and fence their neighbor off or to try and close a road that was really truly a public easement. And they didn't have the right to close, but they were in a fight with their neighbor or whatever, you know, some just crazy stories. And so all he found is, is, is regulation after regulation about illegally putting fences up. No one ever talked about taking them down because no one ever took them down. Once our neighbor, the, the, the same neighbor whose cows got onto our land, when he saw us taking down some of our fences, he, he tried to talk some sense into us and said, um, don't you understand? If you take your fences down, you'll never be able to have cattle again. And he was just flabbergasted that we were so stupid that we couldn't see what we were, what we were doing to our land. And we were flabbergasted that he didn't see what, what our intentions were because we just come from such different worlds and such different value systems. And again, we, we like this guy and we get along with him, but you know, we're just on, we're just the yin and the yang of fencing and, and, and wildlife because in, in this is a very conservative society and they very much believe that the land and the animals and the wildlife must be utilized and if you don't utilize them you're wasting god's bounty i guess and so they 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 also can't see how we could let animals come onto our farms eat the grass drink our water and leave because, you know, you should be at, charging at, them something. <laughs> but that's what they said. They said, you need to kill some and sell them, at least take the meat. Because uh. they're, they're taking your grass. And at Independence, or maybe even before, um, the rights of wildlife uh, devolved to the landowner. So if they're on your land, you, they're yours. And so if you, if they're inside your fences and you want to shoot them, or let someone buy a license to shoot them, it's free meat. Right. And so to let them just pick up and walk away seems like sheer insanity to someone who's grown up under that system. Um, but there's plenty of other people who think like we do as well. 
Well, I think that, I think the power in you just removing fencing, it, you know, I think a lot of people might let that go and go, okay, wow, that's crazy that they feel like that and hear what you just said and just kind of move on. But really, I would encourage people to listen in closer to what probably is happening. If you can picture people being this indoctrinated to a certain kind of system where they think it's practically sacrilege to let animals eat your bounty and then just walk away without exacting a a price for that. And that the fences, you know, mean you'll never have a viable in their mind. The only viable operation is a cattle operation and you're rooting your... But the fact that you took those fences out really must have made and continues to make a, a huge, like, nobody's ever done that before. What are they doing? It's making people think. And that generation may just die off thinking the same thing that they do today. But people must notice what you and others are doing there. And it must just by your example, make a pretty darn hefty impact. Well, you know, what's interesting is people have been doing it now for a number of years, but everyone just does it quietly. And it's kind of like it snakes up on you. And each year that ticks by, there's a little less fencing and a little less and a little less. It didn't happen all at once. And so it happens in increments. And I think that helps. So people don't, you know, get too much pushback. But now at this point, um, up and down this stretch of the grasslands, there's more unfenced land than fenced land. Wow. So it's definitely going in the right direction. Another problem with fences is fires. So this is a grassland. It's like, you know, just like in California, we have fires there. You know, there's a fire ecology here. They're mostly set by lightning strikes. We haven't had much of an issue in the last few years because of the drought. There's not enough grass to burn. But after the, those big rain years, you do get years where you have a lot of fire problems. And they, the farmers suppress those fires because they want to save their grass for their cattle. They don't let them burn through. And grass fires actually run pretty hot and fast, and then they're out. But between fire suppression and then sometimes kind of poorly managed controlled burns that get out of control and incredible winds that come along with big storms that drop lightning, big problem is with fences is animals get trapped. And so in a, a wild environment, they could outrun the fire. But if they get trapped in a panic up against the fences, they die. And I had a really interesting thing happen a few years back. There was a, a, a grass fire that got up the side of the mountain, up the escarpment and got into the, you know, the scrub trees, which is a, a lot more potent fuel source. It burns for a lot longer. And it's just a volunteer. Everyone just pitches in and invites the fires together. There's no fire department. We were up on the top of the mountain fighting this fire and the wind shifted. And I was standing on the road and I found myself at the leading edge of the fire. I shouldn't have been there, but sometimes it happens. And I had this incredibly visceral experience with the, the smoke blowing at me and the heat from the fire. I was being pummeled by insects and birds that were trying to outfly the fire. And they were hitting me, they were bouncing off of me. It was mm. just astonishing. And I'm standing there, you know, trying to look for my exit and thinking, okay, the birds can get away from this, but what about the reptiles and the tortoises, the honey badgers, the porcupines? Maybe they can outrun it. They're not being stopped by fences, but what about the zebra and the oryx? They're going to pile up against the fences and die. And I realized that there's so many issues tied to how we fenced off the world. And I just read a statistic that South Africa, and Namibia takes all its clues from South Africa, 
is considered one of the most heavily fenced countries in the world. This is my land, it's my land and you can't come on it. And this is where my land begins and, you know, and your rights end. And it's going to be hard to change that, but as uneconomic cattle farming, goat farming, sheep farming is phased out in areas like this because the, the next generation if they want to become farmers, they want to farm in a higher rainfall area, yeah. you know, and that's why these farms are being sold off to people like us. They call them lifestyle farms or they're sold for tourism purposes. I think these fences should come down more and more. And, you know, um, but that takes us back to most people counting on tourism to help them survive. And these we don't have any Ted Turners out here. These aren't billionaires who are just buying up you know, hundreds of thousands of acres just because it's pretty. These are people who have an, a passionate attachment to the land, but, uh, you know, are kind of land rich and cash poor. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm looking into offsets because economic hardship is what leads to overgrazing and predator persecution and overhunting and poaching game and draining the desert aquifers, which is already happening. In the last couple of years, all of our local boreholes have been going dry one by one. And all the farms in our area have had to re-drill new boreholes for water. And we've gone from a 130 meter level of finding water to 200 plus. And I would say that that aquifer was probably drained by the cattle industry over decades and it's gone now. And there's no control over rural water usage by the state. And so we have to restrain ourselves or it's the tragedy of the commons in the Namib. And the other things that people do is they start selling camel thorn trees for firewood. That's a protected species, but there's nobody to enforce it. Human wildlife conflict. You know, we always think that's farmers shooting cheetah and leopard because they're, you know, preying on their goats, but it's also farmers shooting zebras for eating their cattle's grass. And our zebra, Hardeman mountain zebra is a protected species, but again, there's just not enough enforcement or penalties to prevent that from happening. I just think it would be amazing if we could find a, another income stream for people who want to do the right thing, but could be pushed into doing the wrong thing out of economic desperation. I'm wondering if, if the people who are already working on this internationally should be looking at something like an Africa Biodiversity Fund that comes up with standards that aren't so complex that people like us can't participate, but maybe uh, oversees the management of it and helps move some of this offset money to a place like this that really needs it instead of parking it in places that probably could find other funding. And again, the government's not going to do it between feeling like they can't afford to, which I question, but also feeling like it's too much um, focus on nature as opposed to poverty uh, and not seeing the connection. But, you know, there is some good news. We've got a thing called uh, NOM Parks, which is there's an initiative happening right now that is trying to connect the re really large parks in this country. All that protected land I talked about earlier that run north to south. This is a, a long, narrow country, mm -hmm. um, kind of like the California, but much bigger. And they're looking at how to create migration corridors between the parks. And then our local landscape group that we belong to, the Greater Sosa-Solena Mib Landscape, is working, doing kind of the same thing with private landowners that abut the park. So 
between those two initiatives, there's a lot of wonderful potential connections to be made for, for wildlife corridors, migration corridors, and which could really bring back a lot of missing species that were hunted out. Giraffe, like I mentioned earlier, are coming back on their own, Vildebeest, Cape Vulture, which used to breed in this area. It would be nice to see them come back. We've got um, white-backed vulture, which are now critically endangered. We need a more robust population. There used to be lions here. They say the last one was shot in the 70s by a farmer, but they're in the north. They could potentially come back down a corridor and rewild themselves. And we've got some some lovely young Namibians that are really aware of this. They don't have a loud enough voice, but they're they're taking advantage of things like social media and Facebook to connect with each other. There's a really interesting young guy that that um, I've known for a number of years who's doing these very long walks. Um, to protest things like rhino poaching and contacting the newspaper, contacting the radio stations, putting it on Facebook. He's got WhatsApp groups. And he's from uh, one of the poorest tribes in the North. And so it's just really wonderful to see him doing this. Because mm. uh, he knows that the, the way it's set up now is not working for them anyway. Trophy yeah. hunting is not working for them. They're not, they get no... Um, none of the money from trophy hunting trickles down to the ground level in his tribe. What, what can we do to help with your efforts? People are, you know, absolutely welcome to contact me directly for more information. We're working on getting fiscal sponsorship in the United States because I know a lot of people, it's, it's complicated to, to move money internationally, whether it's a small donation or a big one, it's complicated. So we're trying to take a lot of the friction out of that process. Um, and we do have a, a charitable trust here that is a nonprofit. This is a very simple project. There's not a lot of complexity. We don't have salaries and overheads and that sort of thing. Um, any donations that came into our project would go toward um, just a few simple things. One is to buy these two strategically placed farms that give us a great connection to the watershed. And I'd like to put those in um, deed restrictions, like a 99 year deed restriction that basically says, can't be developed ever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not even sure you can do a deed restriction longer than that realistically, but I wanna lock it up in a, in a legal way so people know we're really serious. And then the other thing we're going to have to address at some point is to hire uh, like a, a farm ranger, someone who's, 100% full-time job is just driving and looking for incidents, injured animals, making sure the water holes are working and the pumps are working, looking for potential poaching, which we don't have a lot of, but you still have to, you know, people, people need to know land is being watched and um, someone's looking out for it. But also the data collection that I was talking about earlier. Someone has to go out and literally collect that data on, on rainfall and weather. And we've had some academics uh, on our property doing some really interesting work, a cheetah study, a zebra study. They're kind of ongoing. Um, everybody's struggling for funding because of um, the pandemic, but they'll, I'm sure they'll restart when, when they can. And we've got some good universities with, with conservation programs here in Namibia. And we encourage um, some of our friends who are academics to bring students out whenever they want, camp on the land, you know, come up with projects, um, get, let, those, let those kids get out in the field and not have all of their uh, experience come from a classroom, which is very common here. If people are inspired to support us, that is where 
those those are the two main things that donations would go to. And we still have some fences we have to take down and it's it's rough work. This is, you know, you're out in the desert in the heat and it's very time consuming to do it properly and to like you said, you know, collect the mess and collect the bones and collect the the wire and you can't leave it lying around. It injures animals. But we just keep chipping away at it. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and talk to us about this beautiful place where you live and the work that you're doing to rewild it. I really appreciate your time. Well, and I appreciate that you invited me on, Jack. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.